You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. What a day. That's all we can say lately, and it's another one of them. What a day. Stocks gave up their gains mid-morning on the realization that fiscal stimulus may not be imminent. Futures had indicated more than a thousand-point rally. We started losing steam when our Eamon Javers reported around 8 a.m. that a White House plan for an economic response is, quote, not there right now. Later, the House Democrats were saying that legislation still needs to be developed and won't happen this week. Then you've got the CDC also saying that controlling the outbreaks in some parts of the U.S. is beyond containment efforts. Although the stocks, and you can see there where we dipped red just before noon, we began to turn around when the president said he will visit Congress tomorrow and that relief for the cruise industry is coming. Still, the street is realizing this is going to take time. Goldman Sachs saying some of the fastest fiscal stimulus plans have taken nearly six months to pass. Raymond James saying that while they believe a package will be produced, the timing and scope remain uncertain. So let's get to all of it now with Bob Asani tracking today's action for us down at the NYSE. Bob? Kelly, that was a terrific summary. I couldn't have done better myself. Folks, you learned from the master there. So what Kelly is saying is that the marginal mover of the market is not just the coronavirus story. It's the whole situation concerning stimulus, fiscal stimulus. You talk about it more, it looks more likely coming. Market tends to react. Less likely, market tends to go in the other direction. You want to talk about what the president was saying. I want to show you uh, Royal Caribbean. We moved 1,000 points in the Dow today because we can't figure out what the earnings situation is going to look like. But look at Royal Caribbean. The president started talking late in the morning about help for the cruise line industry. Royal Caribbean had three trading halts on the upside, not on the downside. Three times it was halted because the president implied help was coming. There you see fiscal stimulus and a response directly. The other ones moved as well. We have withdrawn guidance all over the place in the travel industry. We know about this. We've talked about bookings, JetBlue, Hyatt. These all in the last several days just withdrawing their guidance. And that's going to happen with other industries uh, as well. The main source of these big swings, I said the inability to figure out what the E and the PE is, earnings. You want to see another indication of how clueless the market is? Caterpillar this morning opens at 109, goes to 99. It moves in a 10% range on an intraday basis. That doesn't happen. It doesn't make any sense on a fundamental basis, only if you have no idea what Caterpillar's earnings might be in the next three or four quarters. Guys, back to you. Yeah, that was the, Bob, you're, I learned, you're the master. Yeah, that's what, that's, no, yeah, I, I, I sit I, in your, <laughs> I listened, I listened to that summary and I said, I couldn't have done better than that. That really was very good. Time. Maria Bowden, she's the master. Bob, thank you. We appreciate okay. it, sir. We'll see you in a little bit. Uh, for more on how investors should react to this roller coaster action in the markets, let's welcome in Jim Tierney. He's chief investment officer at Allianz Bernstein. Rich Weiss is chief investment officer at American Century Investments. Welcome, gentlemen. Um, Rich, I'll just start with you because last time we saw you, you were, you were uh, pretty bearish, I should say, on the economy. You think a recession is, is quite likely. Um, What's your, how's your thinking evolved on that and on the markets? Do you think now that we're down almost 20 percent here, you're seeing signs of any turnaround? Uh, not in the near future. You know, I'm, I'm not even sure we could see the bottom at this point. You know, it's, an, it's what they call an exogenous shock, a so-called black swan coming from the medical community. The impact, ultimate impact on U.S. economic growth, global economic growth, and certainly corporate earnings are unknown at this time, which explains a lot of the volatility in the market today. But Again, I don't I don't think we've seen the bottom, nor can we even see the bottom at this point. It's coming from the medical community. And even they are unsure of the magnitude and and breadth and depth uh, of this crisis. So I would definitely keep your powder dry. Uh, Don't panic sell, of course, at this time. That never pays uh, when you have these types of situations. But it's definitely going to get worse before it gets better. Would you change your mind, Rich, if we do get an announcement 
maybe after the close today, maybe hints are dribbled out to the press, maybe a big announcement tomorrow. The White House says, boom, this is our plan. Payroll tax cut, you know, loan relief to biz- uh, loans for businesses, relief for those who are hard hit, hourly workers and so forth. Would that change your mind? Uh, that'll help, certainly. I don't know that it would change my mind. It would stick to your overall longer term plan. Don't panic sell. The, the fact of the matter is that the economic growth this year was predicated on on two key pillars. That is the consumer being strong, which has propped us up most of the last 10 years uh, and, and corporate earnings would have come through because last year was all about P.E. expansion. Mm-hmm. And neither of those things are going to be there in the near future. Economic growth in the U.S. is likely to be uh, in recession or close to it. All right. And, and so it's not going to change anything substantially. OK, fiscal or otherwise. Jim, let me bring you in then. Uh you look at parts of the market that have been the winners and say you can kind of still lean on those names like the Microsofts, like the MasterCard, right? I think we have no idea where exactly the bottom is, but you have to get involved in steps. And it's not easy, but you have to do a little bit now, a little bit in a couple weeks, and you say, where am I going to be safe? Where do I know that my capital is going to work over two, three, four years? And companies like Microsoft or companies like MasterCard are going to be around. You're still going to be using Microsoft Office. You're still going to be using MasterCard-backed cards, and they will be around. I don't think you can go to places where there's a lot of debt or where the industry may be uh, having secular change permanently. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. So if, those are the, if you favor, let's say, the winners uh, of this bull market, then you would avoid companies with high debt loads, obviously, in a time like this. And we've seen those ones with the hardest hit. But you're not necessarily looking for value plays, it sounds to me, in energy or anything uh, like that with a secular challenge. What about financials? What about banks? We don't do a whole lot in the banking sector. I, I, with a zero interest rate world, if that's where we're going to, I think it's going to be harder for banks to make money. I'd say, why do you have to go there? Why do you have to take on that risk? Uh, with all the quality growth on sale, you don't have to. And, and it's a great stock picker's market right now. All right. Jamie Cox is also joining the conversation. He's the managing partner at Harris Financial Group. Uh, Jamie, so we've heard from Rich, who's a little bit more uh, bearish on the economy and the markets. Jim may be kind of tactically buying here. What would you, what's your advice uh, to investors? I think investors are learning the hard way about you know what, what companies they own. We're starting to see a lot of dividend cuts in, in the oil patch all of a sudden. So I think investors are, are going to get a good lesson on why you need to understand what you own when you buy something. Like if you own companies in oil just for the dividend, you're getting a, a you're getting you're getting your uh, you're getting your money handed to you right now. So I think there's a lot of that that investors could take away when they actually make their decisions to buy in the future. In addition to that, I'm with. I'm with the people who want to buy right now with these growth companies. I mean, I think Microsoft, MasterCard, I think all of these places are great companies that we loved two months ago at much higher prices. And if you have any money on the sidelines or if you've got bond holdings that you'd like to reallocate, you've got plenty of options on the table. And I think people should be doing that right now because as soon as clarity comes back, it may be too late to pick these these good deals up. Rich, you want to respond to that? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I, I, I would say resist the temptation, obviously, to jump out of the frying pan into the fire. But uh, wh- where are you going to go at this point? You're going to go into bonds, VIX, gold, uh, the Japanese yen, the Swiss franc or They're utilities. Go into These big tech. Run. What about yeah. Fang? Uh, again, I'd say too early. I'm now, if you have if you have money on the sidelines and you have a longer term horizon, I would agree. You know, over a three, five year period, you're probably going to see gains. But for most investors right now, if you're already holding the stocks, plowing more money into the stock market right now is a little too early. I'd wait until some of the uh, some of this exogenous variable clarifies itself 
before you'd go jumping into the deep end of the pool. Jim Tierney, why not wait? I mean, is, do you feel like there's some urgency right now with the, the dislocations we've had in some of these names? I, I think when you can buy some of these great franchises down 20 or 25 percent, you have the Fed on your side, you probably have the administration on your side, and you have time on your side. At some point, the number of cases is going to go down, and the market's going to lift, and it's, whether it's a 5 or 10 or 15 percent lift. And we're going to say right back where we were in 2018 in the fourth quarter, why didn't I jump in in December? Now's your chance. Let's unpack those for a second. So you do think some plan is coming from the administration. Do you care how long it takes? Uh, they have to do something in the next three to six months. Okay, so that's a, a fairly long time. In other words, you're giving them the amount of time they'll probably yes. need in order to, to move this thing. You say you've got the Fed on your side uh, for investors right now. What about the fact that after the rate cut last week, the markets tumbled worse uh, than if, seemingly than if they'd done nothing at all? I think you had two other factors in play. One is the number of cases keeps on going up, so we need to see that peak. And the second is what happened with oil. And, and, and certainly they impacted the market when we sort all of that out. This is a great buying opportunity. Do you, do you, does that mean you have to take a stand on OPEC? Can, if oil stays down here, all bets are off? Or are you just saying the market can kind of put that to the side? We've worked through that event now, and it's out of the I way. I think we've worked through it. And for the majority of companies and for consumers, low oil prices is a great thing. Jamie, we'll give you the quick final word here. Uh, having heard uh, kind of Jim's recommendations, anything you'd, you'd, you'd change, or would you just say, uh, echo what he's had to say? I think that uh, I think that companies with large balance sheets are the are the ones to own at this particular moment. If you find a, an example like like in my, I think Clorox is a good one to sell right now because it has a lower it's a lower credit to Triple B versus a Procter and Gamble, which is a is a, a double A, you know, much better interest rate coverage. I think if you are worried about markets or worried about the future. The, the one of the ways to, to drive through it is to own companies with large balance sheets where you don't have to worry about dividend cuts. You don't have to worry about, you know, exogenous shocks really having immediate impact to their businesses. So I believe that's what people yeah. should concentrate on right now and they'll do fine. You mean a lot of cash on the balance sheet, not a lot of debt. <laughs> yes, correct. Yeah. Yes. Right. Guys, thank you all. Great conversation today. A lot of good ideas in there. We really appreciate it. Rich Weiss, Jamie Cox and Jim Tierney. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, you heard a little bit about the energy sector. It has given up most of its gains today from earlier in the session. We turned negative at one point as oil has trying to rebound from its worst day since 1991. Several energy companies are coming off their worst day ever, including names like Apache, Occidental, which just slashed its dividend, One Oak, Marathon, and Diamondback, all losing about half of their market value just this week. But my next guest says this is the beginning only and that $20 oil is coming this year. For more, I'm joined by Ali Kedari. He's founder and CEO of strategic advisory firm Dragoman Ventures. He's a former ExxonMobil senior advisor for the Middle East as well. Ali, it's good to see you. So you're, uh, you're hardly optimistic on this scenario. Why do you think the oil is headed lower from here, even into the 20s? Thanks for having me, Kelly. I'm generally bearish because we face an unprecedented and historic situation in that we both have a supply shock and a demand shock at the same time. Obviously, the demand shock stems from the coronavirus, and then the supply shock was precipitated by this uh, price war declared by both the Saudis and the Russians as they try to stem the rise of American unconventional production. So that being the case, how low for how long? To be honest with you, I don't think there is a floor on the oil price. Certainly, it's some, somewhere in the 20s, but it could even go lower. Um, the only the floor will 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 arise when when physical barrels of production are taken offline. So the Saudis announced today that they're going to surge production from less than 10 million barrels a day to above 12 million barrels. 
The Russians have been producing near all out, but they've also, I think, announced plans to increase by about a half million barrels a day. And the Iraqis, the Emiratis, some of the other Gulf states can increase production by about another million barrels. So the market is going to be supplied by at least four, oversupplied by at least four million barrels at a time again when you have airlines slashing routes, people not driving their children to school in the morning, yeah. um, and other other demand shocks. Yeah, the news today just keeps piling up. Harvard telling students not to come back from spring break. I mean, it just goes on and on. New Rochelle, businesses are closed. So if we're 4 million barrels a day oversupplied, is the U.S. ultimately going to be the producer that has to pull back? Who's going to blink here? So that is the trillion-dollar question. Who is going to blink? Um, I think the Russians and the Saudis actually might have miscalculated, as they did several years ago when they, when they initiated the 2014 price war. The reality is that while the American unconventional producers are massively indebted, for them to take production offline still will require six to 12 months, right? Because they already have some cash flow uh, and they already have cash on the, on the books and they have sunk costs. So even if they sink into bankruptcy, it's still going to take six to 12 months for the actual barrels to be removed off the market. And the question is, do the Saudis and the Russians have the patience and um, are they willing to bleed cash mm -hmm. to ride out the storm? And nobody knows. And it's obviously going to be a political decision decided by at least Putin and Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Who do you think can last longer, Saudi or Russia? So if you study the numbers, the, the, the Russians have been increasing their sovereign wealth fund reserves and foreign exchange reserves and gold reserves for the past several years to over... Uh, half a trillion dollars. The Saudis are at about the half trillion dollar mark as well, but the Saudi fiscal break-even is much higher. It's near $90 a barrel, while Russian fiscal break-even is in the 40s or, or low 50s. So the Russians, theoretically, and they've said it publicly as well, can are likely to ride out the storm, be able to ride out the storm much longer than the Saudis. All right. Ali, thanks. We appreciate your perspective. We'll check back in soon. Thank you. Ali Kaderi is the founder and CEO of Dragomon Ventures. Coming up, plan. What plan? The president says he's ready to stimulate the economy, but it turns out the plan isn't quite there right now. We'll explore what is actually on the table and what would be the best approach. Plus, the empty skies, airlines announcing more capacity cuts and even CEO pay cuts. And the market likes it. Could it be time to get back into the sector? As we head to break here, a look at the leaders on the S&P 500 today. A lot of energy names up there. Pioneer, MGM, Lincoln National, Occidental, and Hess, all up uh, more than 9.5%. We're back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. Another day of market tumult. The Dow was up on 945 points at the highs and down 160 at the lows. Right now, we're up just shy of 400 points. It's a 50-point gain for the S&P. We're up 160 for the Nasdaq. As for the leadership, it's tech and the banks leading the Dow right now. That includes Apple, Microsoft, and J.P. Morgan, among the biggest winners today. Uh, and Boeing, the biggest drag on the Dow. It's down more than 4% today. We're also going to check in on energy, with oil rebounding about 7% today after its worst session yesterday since 1991. 
The oil and gas ETF, that's the XOP, is now up more than 14%, as you can see. And speaking of energy, Occidental shares are up nearly 6%. The company just cut its dividend big time from 79 cents to 11 cents per share. Says it will also reduce capital spending this year because of the sharp drop in commodity prices. And finally, take a look at Stitch Fix. That recent IPO is now down more than 30% after mixed earnings and disappointing full-year guidance. Had some cautionary things to say about uh, retail pricing in general. Now, let's get to the latest in the coronavirus outbreak as Italy has shut the entire country down and efforts here in the U.S. are being stepped up in order to keep citizens from spreading the disease more. Meg Terrell is here with where things stand right now. Meg? Oh, hi, Kelly. CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield telling Congress the vice president's office will release a mitigation strategy for the coronavirus today, a framework for each of the states. And New York today announcing its own mitigation strategy in New Rochelle as cases in Westchester County grew by 10 to 108. Schools and other public gathering places within a one-mile radius of the epicenter of the New Rochelle outbreak will be closed for two weeks starting Thursday. The state will also bring in the National Guard to assist in its response. Total New York State cases rose by 31 today to 173, including a near doubling of cases in New York City to 36. And finally, an update on a potential treatment. Gilead's remdesivir has been used on a compassionate use basis for a number of people in Washington State, the CDC director said today, noting there should be data on whether it works by April and saying, quote, that's important because that's a drug that can save lives if it works. Yeah, that would be great. Going back to what's happening in New Rochelle where we're seeing this, uh, what was the term? Containment. Containment, right. It's weird because it's not a full quarantine, it sounds like. They're not saying to people, you have to stay at home, uh, perhaps thinking that would be too draconian, but if you don't make them stay at home, they could still travel elsewhere and continue to spread coronavirus, you'd think. That's right. So they are saying uh, they are moving from containment to mitigation, but they are establishing this one-mile radius around the epicenter of the outbreak, essentially trying to slow the spread if they can, because the numbers have just been climbing incredibly quickly in this one cluster. Now, there are some folks who are quarantined there because of potential exposure to a known case. Uh, So those people do have to stay uh, in their homes, but everybody else uh, doesn't. It's just those public gathering places and schools. Yeah, so we'll have to see how effective it is. Meanwhile, I mean, you've got you know, the cancellation of sports playoff seasons. You've got colleges telling kids not to come back from spring break. And it feels like the announcements we've had so far are setting the template for what may spread to, to regions, even those who haven't actually been affected by coronavirus yet. Or that we know haven't been affected by coronavirus just exactly. yet. A lot of folks are worried that the spread is wider than we've currently been able to detect, though testing, of course, is ramping up around the country. Yeah, that's a big part of this. All right, Meg, thanks. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell. Coming up, once we get to the point that corporate America is ready to travel again, that will come back. And by that, Doug Parker means corporate travel. When it will happen, no one really knows. And in the meantime, airlines are taking drastic measures to make it through. We'll tell you what they are ahead. Plus, as state and city finances get hit by the coronavirus crisis, we're going to get a behind-the-scenes look at how Chicago's Treasury team is navigating through this turmoil. And a reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get right to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden visiting a Fiat Chrysler plant in Detroit, Michigan. He met with workers there as voters in Michigan head to the polls for the state's primary. One voter challenged Biden on Second Amendment rights. Biden responded that he favors a ban on assault weapons, but not all guns. 
Speaking of which, Dick's Sporting Goods saying it will pull guns from another 440 stores this year. Dick's had stopped gun sales in some stores following the 2018 mass shooting at Stoneman Douglas High School, which is located in Parkland, Florida. A federal appeals court ruling that the Justice Department must give Congress secret testimony from special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. The three-judge panel said House Democrats were entitled to the material as part of their ongoing investigation into President Trump's conduct. And family members marking the one-year anniversary of the Boeing 737 MAX jet crash in Ethiopia, which killed all 157 people on board. Buses and smaller vehicles arrived at the crash site on a newly built road to attend the service where large tents had been erected. You are up to date. That's the news update. Kel, I'll send it back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera. Stock trading app Robinhood crashing three times during this ongoing market volatility. That's left users without its platform to trade on. Kate Rooney is here to talk about the details and the fallout, Kate. Robinhood was down again yesterday in the 2,000-point sell-off, but up so far again today. What's the company saying about all this? We haven't seen any outages today. This all started yesterday around the open of trading. So 9.30, you start seeing on Twitter that people are complaining that they still can't get access to the Robinhood account. This after two days of outages last week. So by 10.30, they said they were partially back online. 3.30 p.m. comes around. They say they are fully back, but again, only an hour left in trading. Right. Um, so the response from the company was that this was a different problem than last week. They blamed it on trading volume. And we did see others like Fidelity and TD Ameritrade saying when we had that historic market week that they also saw some issues and some downtime. This is apparently, according to the company, completely different. So it calls into question, is it an issue with their technology stack? They also launched fractional trading recently, which a source told me that this could be part of the issue that might have to do that rollout. Interesting, because, again, fractional trading means now that the average price of the S&P 500 is so high, it lets users buy $10 worth, for example, of Tesla instead of having to pay nearly $1,000 a share at one point. But obviously the mechanics of that, I I would imagine, can get pretty tricky. Right, and they do self-clearing. So that's another potential issue that a lot of other startups that do that, SoFi and Square, for example, rely on a third party. Robinhood doesn't in-house. So any of the issues that are coming up are probably an internal issue with Robinhood versus another startup being able to say, oh, it's our third party that we work with that's having a glitch here. You know, it's often said, and people talk about this in terms of um, young folks on Wall Street and what have you, that, you know, you're really tested, you prove your mettle in times of crisis. So for Robinhood, which had been doing so well, so successful, 10 million plus users, um, it's not really... Um, been able to live up so far to this crisis. Does that mean it's going to require a lot more technology investment? Does it change the valuation of this privately traded company? Does it mean they might need deeper pockets from a, some kind of different backer in order to, to really scale this thing? It calls that valuation into question. So they've gotten an almost an $8 billion valuation. They're, one of the reasons it was so highly valued is because customers seemed to love it. And it got this very quick snowball effect of customer acquisition. People would tell their friends. But now that people on Twitter are saying that they're going to leave and complaining about it, it really calls into question that growth. They've seen massive growth. So what, do we'll we know see. what the valuation was at last check? $7.6 billion. Wow. So we'll see. And it, they also were seen as an M&A target. So this could affect, affect their M&A prospects. Sure. If you still like it long term and you're you know, one of the big... Uh, we, look, we just saw Morgan Stanley buy E-Trade. That's so right. it could be in the mix. All right, Kate, we appreciate it. Thanks, Good Kelly. to see you, Kate Rooney. We have some breaking news, some more breaking news on coronavirus. Eric Chemi here with that, Eric. 
Kelly, that's right. So Walmart is saying that one of its employees in Kentucky has tested positive for coronavirus. And so as a result, Walmart said it's reinforcing their cleaning and sanitizing protocol. And there will also be uh, three uh, new things they're going to work on here, three scenarios that they're doing for this emergency policy. The first one, they're allowing employees to stay home if they feel uncomfortable at work, if they feel sick. So they're waiving their attendance policy through the end of April. Second, um, if anyone is quarantined by a government measure, they're forced to not be able to go to work. Walmart uh, will pay them for up to two weeks of pay at any associated absence will not count against their attendance. And Walmart is saying um, if, they're, if, they're, if an associate becomes ill with a confirmed case of coronavirus, that employee will receive two weeks of pay. And if they're unable to return to work after those two weeks, additional pay replacement may be available for up to 26 weeks. So, so here's one company stepping up its monetary response if employees get sick or they're unable to work because one Walmart employee testing positive in Kentucky. Kelly, back to you. In Kentucky. All right, Eric, thanks. We appreciate it. Eric Chemi. Coming up here on The Exchange, it's the cancellation of more and more conventions because of coronavirus, which could be the beginning of a seismic impact on state and local budgets. We're going to take a look at two states that could be the most vulnerable. Plus, half-empty planes and heavy debt loads have taken their toll on the airline sector. But today they're rallying. Why? And is now the time to buy, we will ask. Also, a look at the financials today, which are attempting to rebound after yesterday's dramatic drop. Both sector ETFs up more than 4% now, uh, led by shares of Goldman. Uh, up more than 3%, I should say, Goldman uh, holding on to that level. There's J.P. Morgan up more than 4% in the trading session. We're back right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. The coronavirus is continuing to pressure airlines. As people and businesses put all their travel on hold, airline CEOs expressing their concerns at what was a virtual J.P. Morgan Industrials conference today. Take a listen. This is a very fluid situation and an environment in which it's incredibly difficult to forecast future demand. So given this uncertainty, we've suspended our financial guidance for the first quarter and the full year of 2020. Two weeks ago, our revenue trajectory changed dramatically as the virus spread meaningfully outside of Asia. Since then, we have seen a 25 to 30 percent decline in net bookings and are prepared for it to get worse. We expect demand erosion will continue in the near term and have built a plan that prioritizes free cash flow generation and preserves liquidity. When I look at how the demand has deteriorated in the last couple of weeks, it appears to be worse than what we saw after 9-11. Well, let's bring in Helene Becker. She's Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst at Cowan. Helene, it's good to see you today. And, I mean, it's, it's shocking for any of us to hear. Helene, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you fine. Thank okay, you. Okay, awesome. Just making sure. So I was just going to say it's shocking for any of us to hear an airline CEO make a comparison to 9-11. Um, how bad is it uh, in, out there? And what does it mean for your coverage universe? Yeah, I think it seems to be pretty bad. Um, leisure travel seems to be... Um, responding somewhat to lower fares. Corporate demand is non-existent and obviously the airlines have to process refunds for those corporate travelers in the short term. So you've got huge declines in revenue that come from both the decline in future bookings as well as the decline in um, net booking. So you know, that's cancellation. So increase in cancellation. So you're seeing those two things weigh heavily on the group, and obviously the stocks have come down significantly to reflect this short-term lack of demand. And, 
You know, the question is, how long is short term? Um, we heard a number of the airline management say that this morning, but, you know, if you look at after 9-11, um, September traffic was, of 01, traffic was down 38%, then October was down 21%, then November was down 18%, and then it kind of gradually improved from there, but still down right through about February, March of 02, and that's where you saw the recovery. Um, but you were heading into the winter months, right? And you could stimulate demand for, for the holiday season. Right now, you know, spring break is just about upon us. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks are canceling their spring break plans, and they're not yet making summer plans. I guess preferring to see um, how this whole thing plays out. And I think the airlines are being very aggressive in responding, uh, more aggressive than we've ever seen them in the past, um, to, to cutting capacity, right. uh, cutting capex, just doing everything they can to preserve capital. Yeah, we heard that this morning. Uh, Delta reducing system-wide capacity by 15 points more than its plan. International capacity reduced by 20 to 25 percent. Uh, you know, and we're also seeing some of the CEOs cut their salaries, which I don't think will have as, as big an impact, but at least is a, is a gesture. Um, are there, since you mentioned leisure travel is to some extent holding in there on, on, on price cuts, corporate travel is, is gone. Does that favor holding one type of airline over another uh, for the next six months? And is there going to be a cash crunch for any of the names that you cover? Yeah, so those are all very good questions. The way I think about leisure is um, most of the airlines will tell you that about 80 to 85 percent of their traffic flies once a year or less and provides half their revenue. Hmm. Um, and you can generally stimulate leisure demand by cutting fares. Um, people will, at some point, feel a little more comfortable about traveling, just get tired of staying home, <laughs> will want to, you know, get out and do something. So we do think that they'll respond to that. Um, to the to the lower fares. Corporate, obviously, your boss tells you you're not going anywhere, you're obviously not going to travel. Um, so, so in terms of cash crunch, um, I think every airline has started to tap their um, credit lines. They've sorted out with their banks, um, you know, some liquidity measures. Uh, United just said this earlier this morning, they said that they raised $2 billion of additional liquidity. They're up to $8 billion. They've got $20 billion of unencumbered assets. Um, so, you know, we're watching all this very closely, and obviously the longer it lasts, the deeper, you know, the, the crunch and the more concerned we would be. Um, obviously, uh, you saw earlier this morning you guys had a story as well that the White House was willing to do some help but right. for the industry, um, but none of the airlines have asked for help at this point. Okay. I guess they know they, uh, they might have an ear at the White House if they need it. Uh, perhaps can give investors some encouragement. Helene, good to see you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Helene Becker with Cowan and Company on those airlines. And coming up on Closing Bell at 4 p.m. today, the CEO of JetBlue, Robin Hayes, is the closer. He'll weigh in on how the airline is dealing with the coronavirus and its impact on their bottom line. You definitely don't want to miss that. Still ahead right here, conferences, summits, trade shows, and conventions are being canceled across the country. We're going to drill down on the impact on one major city and its budget next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Four major conventions in Chicago getting canceled due to COVID-19 in just the past few weeks. It'll have a major impact on both its local and statewide economy. Scott Cohn is in the Windy City for us with all the details. Hi, Scott. 
Hi, Kelly. Behind me is Chicago's McCormick Place. They say it is the largest convention center in the Western Hemisphere, and it is dead, even though normally they would be setting up for the International Housewares show that was supposed to get underway at the end of the week. That's been canceled. A cardiologist convention that was supposed to follow, that has been canceled. A couple of other gatherings are gone as well. In all, 92,000 people that would have come to Chicago are not coming here. That, if you figure that they spend about $2,000 uh, on their visit here, that's a hit to the local economy at a minimum of nearly $184 million just in the month of March. The Chicago Civic Federation, which is a local watchdog group, says the convention business accounts for about $3 billion a year in tax revenue to the city and the state. And they warn that neither the city of, the, of Chicago nor the state of Illinois has meaningful reserves, and both have had difficulty balancing their budgets under the weight of enormous debt and unfunded liabilities. In the trading room at the Chicago uh, City Treasurer's Office, where they manage the city's $8 billion in operating funds, they, for now, are focused on the short term. When you look at our overall portfolio, about 67% of our portfolio has a maturity of less than a year. Mm. We have to be able that we make certain that liquidity is very important, especially in a volatile situation such as this. In the longer term, though, there are some big issues here, not the least of which is the fact that Chicago's four pension funds are only 23% funded. And that is something that they're going to have to deal with, both with the low interest rates and the hit to the budget that impacts the contributions that they can make. And the muni bond market has not, in the past, it's been pretty friendly to cities and to investors, but there's a lot of reevaluation going on as far as that goes. Consider the fact that the agency that runs this convention center, which is separate from the city, has just warned its bondholders that if these cancellations continue, they could be looking at some big issues ahead. Kelly? Scott, this is such an important story. I hope everyone watches it. It hits absolutely every angle from people trying to own muni debt to the fate of these places like Chicago, the pension problems you mentioned. We thank you for bringing it to us. I wish it was better news, but really, really important sure. stuff. Scott Cohen in Chicago for us. Coming up, the market volatility persisting today with the Dow swinging 1,100 points again. Why investors around the world could be in for a months-long correction. We'll talk about that next. Welcome back. One week after the Fed's emergency rate cut, the yield on the 10-year Treasury bond is well below 1%, and the stock market has dropped about 10%. What is this telling us about the economy, the risk of credit defaults, and the possibility of more rate cuts? Joining me now are Brian Reynolds, Chief Market Strategist at Reynolds Strategy, and Vincent Reinhardt is Chief Economist and Macro Strategist at Mellon. And it's wonderful to have you both here. Brian, let me just start with you and your thoughts on the market. Um, this has been a really sharp sell-off. Do you expect us to have an equally sharp uh, rebound and is the is the long term rally still intact? Well, I think the long term rally still is intact. But a couple of weeks ago, when the velocity of the stock market drop picked up, that was indicative of one of fourteen rapid large corrections. Those are usually months long events, and then after the collapse in money market yields, such as forward LIBOR, such as Fed funds futures, that's also telling us that it's going to be a rough few months ahead. But then, when you look at the actions of pensions that are lining up to put money into credit once this event passes. Mm -hmm. It's a months-long event with a tough grind up, and we've seen that happen a number of times 
over the last decade. Yeah, we just heard from Scott Cohn that Chicago's four uh, pension funds are 23% funded, so they got to make that up somehow, especially with low rates. You also make the point, I think it's worth emphasizing, we have it on screen right now, that investment-grade corporate bond yields have fallen, which is the opposite of what happens in a crisis. Um, having said that, has the Federal Reserve made this crisis worse, Brian? Have they not done enough? Would you like to see them be, be more forceful? How would you analyze that? Well, I think the Fed and the G7 made a policy mistake last week because they issued a message that said everything's on the table and we're going to be coordinated. And then the Fed went ahead by themselves and kind of did it half-heartedly when they were asked about anything other than money, uh, than interest rate policy cuts. The, the chair said they hadn't discussed that yet. And investors didn't want to hear that. Investors wanted to hear that the Fed is ahead of this. And they clearly weren't. And that's what sent money market rates down even further. And so when that happens... And that happened in 98, it happened in 2011, happened in 2013, it happened last, last July. It takes time for the markets, especially the credit market, to get over that. Okay, Vincent, let me bring you in on that. Uh, what could the Fed have done better in this case? And more to the point of what we're waiting to hear for this afternoon is, what role can fiscal policy play? You know, if we get announcement that a plan is in the works, it's being formed, it's targeted at really helping those hurt by coronavirus, do we need to cut rates to zero next week? Uh, well, that's pretty much what's priced in in futures markets, or at least yeah. uh, 75 basis points worth worth of policy ease. I, th I think the problem with an intermediate move is that it looks a little panicky, and people immediately assume that uh, the Fed knows something that uh, we don't know, uh, which is almost never the case. And so they probably could have used a little bit more time and then moved at a meeting more more have considered all the aspects of monetary policy uh, so they could have, have really gone uh, all across the waterfront in terms of policy ease. What is left for them to do now, Vincent? Because if they cut to zero, whether it's uh, next week or, or by April, everyone looks at the situation and says, well, obviously the next thing they have to do if they have to ease any more ever again in the future is to buy bonds, buy some kind of assets. You saw the Eric Rosengren thing last week about maybe they need approval from Congress to buy, to, to buy a wider swath. What type of purchases uh, should we be thinking about? Well, the, the plain fact, if you do unconventional policy once, your, your expectation is that you'll do it again. Uh, they've lowered the hurdle before they uh, t uh, move into the balance sheet. So they'll cut rates. The general advice is if you are worried about the zero lower bound to nominal interest rates, you should get there as quickly as you can uh, because the economy will have more time with policy easing uh, before, while you're at zero. Um, they'll do what they've done before in terms of scale and scope of their quantitative easing. Got to wonder, however, how effective it'll be. Uh, as you noted already, the 10-year Treasury is already quite low. Mortgage yields are quite low. Mm -hmm. uh, mortgage uh, bankers are working at full capacity. Housing is actually the, 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 the one cylinder still firing in the, in the U.S. economy engine, uh, for sure. So uh, it's not obvious that working on the treasuries and mortgage front would be particularly helpful. So what does that leave? Uh, going Bu to, buying going stocks? To Congress I mean, buying gold? What's yeah. left to buy? Other central banks have, have done it. Look at the Swiss National Bank in gold. Look at uh, the Bank of Japan in, in equity. Uh, going to Congress at this time would be not the greatest idea in the world. Uh, it's pretty partisan, and there are a lot of loopy ideas about how monetary policy should be conducted. Uh, the Fed could probably use 
what it did in 2009, facilities to lend against troubled credit if right. it got that bad. All right, Brian, give you the quick last word. Is any of that going to matter? Is, have we destroyed the financial system already because of all of this? No, I think any ease will help the financial markets much more than they'll help the economy. You and I have talked for over eight years about how we've shadow banked the oil sector, and the result is more oil supply and lower oil prices. Well, we kind of hit that threshold this week. And if you look at the way that oil is priced, you can finance it at $45 out for five years. So I think any financing help will help, produce, will help roll defaults into more equity, which means more oil production, which means financial markets benefit much more than the economy will going forward. All right. Guys, thanks. We appreciate it today. Brian Reynolds, Vincent Reinhart unpacking this, uh, these financial markets and this economy. Meantime, President Trump says he is going to announce dramatic and major steps to stimulate the economy, but there doesn't seem to be a concrete plan in place to do that yet. We're going to head to D.C. to get what's actually on the table after this short break. President Trump meeting with Senate Republicans today to discuss economic measures to shore up the economy during the coronavirus outbreak. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin and his top economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, are expected to be there as well. The president apparently pushing for a payroll tax cut, but it faces some skepticism from his own party. Joining me now is Nick Timrose. He's the chief economics correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Looks not a day older than when I first met him 13 years ago, Nick. Uh, anyway, welcome. Um, Thanks here, for having me. Here's my main question. What, is, what should investors think is actually on the table right now at this moment? It's hard to tell because I think we've seen with this administration that there's a tendency to announce a policy change before the policy process has run its course. We saw this with the tax cut in 2017, and we're maybe seeing it now. So a payroll tax cut was something the president said last night that he wanted but earlier last week, Secretary Mnuchin said it wasn't on the table. And Larry Kudlow hasn't traditionally been a big fan of payroll tax cuts. So, you know, that's one question. The second question is, if we're doing a payroll tax cut, is it going to be something that's a relatively shallow cut for a longer period of time or a, a deep cut that's more temporary? We don't know. So there's still a lot that has to get filled in here. What about Senate Republicans, as we understand, that's the kind of the first meeting that has to take place for a meeting of the minds before you then approach the Democrats at the plan. What, what do you think they are likely to support? Well, there, there is a proposal from a Senate, from a Senate Republican uh, to do something like this, but it's, it's hard to tell. And there's a sense up on the Hill that people don't know how bad this is going to get uh, and, and how exactly we should tackle it. Remember, Congress doesn't really do fiscal policy preemptively. Countercyclical fiscal policy isn't something we've normally seen. Instead, we tend to get big changes to taxes and spending uh, once we're in a downturn. And often when there was a new president, which in 2001 and 2009 coincided, of course, with having a downturn. You know, but time is of the essence, Nick, as you know better than anybody. The Fed's meeting next week, they already... Wow, we have the president live. Nick, stay right there. Let's listen to President Trump uh, making some surprise remarks on Capitol Hill. Things that you wanted to get for other things, and we're looking at the people... We're looking at solving this problem. Also, some very good numbers coming out of some countries where it started earlier, and we're seeing some fairly good numbers come out of those countries. That's a good thing, including China. And uh, they've released numbers, and we've gotten some numbers from China that look pretty promising. So we'll be able to further report. Please. Why not get tested yourself? I mean, you interact with MacGates and Doug Well, I don't think it's a big deal. I would do it. I don't feel that. Uh, any reason. I feel extremely good. I feel very good. 
but I guess it's not a big deal to get tested, and it's something I would do. But again, uh, spoke to the White House doctor, terrific guy, talented guy. He said he sees no reason to do it. There's no symptoms, no anything. And you know what? If there were, you people would be the first to know it. You would, you would maybe even tell me about it. Yes, please. Uh, I've been briefed on every contingency you can possibly imagine. Many contingencies. A lot of, a lot of positive, uh, different numbers, all different numbers, very large numbers. Uh, and some small numbers, too, by the way. Look, right now, I guess we're at 26 deaths. And if you look at the flu, the flu for this year, we're at 8 million, we're, we're looking at 8,000 deaths. And, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases, but we have 8,000 deaths. So you have 8,000 versus 26 deaths at this time. With all of that being said, we're taking this unbelievably seriously, and I think we're doing a really good job. And again, the task force headed up by the Vice President has been fantastic. <laughs> No, I think the U.S. has done a very good job on testing. Uh, we had to change things that were uh, done and that were nobody's fault. Perhaps uh, they wanted to do something a different way, but it was a much slower process from a previous administration. And we did change them. We made the changes. But the testing has gone very well. And when people need a test, they can get a test. When the professionals need a test, when they need tests for people, they can get the test. It's gone really well. Look, the biggest thing that we did was stopping the inflow of people early on. And that was weeks ahead of schedule, weeks ahead of what other people would have done. In fact, other people mostly would probably not have done it even till now. And that's made a big difference. Are you planning to fire anybody from the White House that you think has been spreading No, I think the people are doing a fantastic job. In fact, just today, I have an insight. California said tremendous. There's an article just came out. I had it inside. I showed it to the senators, and I showed them other articles, too, where governors, Democrat governors, are saying we've done a fantastic job. Gavin Newsom said there's not a thing that he's asked for that we weren't able to get him. And, you know, he's been uh, a critical guy, like we all are. But it was a very positive uh, uh, statement. Uh, many Democrat governors have said that the task force and the federal government, what we've done has been terrific. Well, this was unexpected. This was something that came out of China and it uh, hit us in many other countries. You look at the numbers, I see the numbers with uh, just by watching you folks, I see it. It's uh, over a hundred different countries uh, and it hit the world. And we're prepared and we're doing a great job with it. And. It will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. We want to protect our shipping industry, our cruise uh, industry, cruise ships. Uh, we want to protect our airline industry. Very important. Uh, but everybody has to be vigilant and has to be careful. But be calm. It's really working out. And a lot of good things are going to happen. The consumer is ready. The consumer is so powerful in our country with what we've done with tax cuts and regulation cuts and all of those things. The consumer has never been in a better position than they are right now. So a lot of good things are going to happen. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.